started. Lord, we thank you so much for today. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the promises that you've given us. This is something I, I thank you for every week because as we study these things pertaining to the coming of the Lord, when you're, when you're returning specifically for us, but also you're coming at the end of the age, we understand the reasons for why you're doing those things. We also understand that part of walking by faith and sanctification is honoring you by actually believing what you tell us. So when you make a promise, we actually need to believe that which you have spoken. So Lord, I ask that you help us to do that, especially as we're looking at these things and people are attacking what we believe is to be the biblical truth. Um, I ask that you give us discernment, not just discernment to know truth from error, but to be able to trust the truth that you've revealed to us. I pray for that specifically as we're going forward in our study. I pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So we're still studying the rapture of the church as we have been for 67 weeks before today. Last we counted. That's about where we're at. So as we're looking at this study, I mean, we could, I, I've said this before, we could have done a really quick really fast-moving study through the rapture of the church. And it actually wouldn't have been too terribly difficult because teaching the doctrine of the rapture of the church and why we believe it is probably maybe a four- to six-week study. It's not very in-depth. Um, but as has been said both on this pulpit and others before, the test of a doctrine isn't just how efficiently you can teach it with the Word of God. It's what do you do with the alternative viewpoints? How can you actually look at those viewpoints in the eye, present them in the exact way they're presented by their proponents, and still say, we believe they're incorrect because the Bible teaches X, Y, or Z? So that's what we're trying to accomplish here, but not just so that we can argue in the ether against other viewpoints, but more specifically so that we can hone ours, so that we can say we know that Jesus is not coming at the end of the tribulational period for his church so that we can say validly looking at the word of God that he is in fact coming prior to the tribulational period to rescue us from the wrath to come. So that's what we're trying to accomplish here both today and what we've been doing for the majority of this study. So we spent quite a bit of time in terms of review on the doctrine of imminence, understanding that Jesus can come back at any moment. Um, in the post-trib crowd, which is who we're studying right now, we're studying post-tribulationalism, they will acknowledge the verses that teach eminence, but they change the meaning of what we mean by that. So when we looked through the New Testament and we saw all these verses talking about the coming of the Lord, how we're waiting for Jesus, how we are eagerly awaiting the uh, basically... Jesus coming back for us specifically, which we argued for in context, we think of that as Jesus could come back at any moment. Because in every single one of those verses that pertains to that subject, not a single one of them has a condition. Not one of them has a single sign or event that has to take place before the coming that is described in those verses has to happen. How they would interpret that is we're just supposed to be eagerly expecting the Lord's coming at the second coming. Again, I'm not saying that you couldn't do that if that were the case. You could take it that way. 
but that's not what it's talking about. And so that's what we're going to be getting into in a little bit more detail as we go forward. Obviously not going into all the work to reteach imminency. That's why we spent so much time on it before. So just by way of review, we believe in a pre-tribulational rapture. That should be abundantly clear by, <laughs> by now. If you're in doubt about that, we can talk about it later. But we believe in a pre-trib rapture, which means that Jesus is going to be coming before the tribulational period for those in Christ. Um, and I've mentioned this before too. Part of the problem that we've had in the past is people have been very, uh, they've lacked precision in the way that they describe the rapture. They've lacked precision in the way that they defended it. So that's how you get all these arguments about Matthew 24, which has nothing to do with the rapture. And people like Arnold Fruchtenbaum, who are excellent teachers 99% of the time, pushing for this idea, and they, they argue it well. I probably wouldn't be able to debate Arnold Fruchtenbaum about that. Um, but they, mis they acknowledge the Jewishness of Matthew 24 while mischaracterizing the purpose of the gathering of the elect. And we're going to be going into that in more detail before we finish the post-trib perspective. Now, we don't live in a vacuum. There are actually more than one viewpoint. So there's the post-trib rapture, which is what we're studying right now. There's the partial rapture theory, the mid-trib theory, as well as the pre-wrath theory. We're going to be giving a little bit of time, airtime to each one of them as we acknowledge what they are. Just so that you can, when you're talking to somebody, be able to tell the telltale signs of every single one of these perspectives. Now, that being said, we went through our initial thoughts on it. And what we've been doing, and what I've been trying to accomplish is, and we're going to be doing this with every single viewpoint, as we're looking at how each of the viewpoints handle our core texts, the core texts in the New Testament that deal with either the rapture or things such as the coming of the Lord, the tribulational period. So we study 1 Thessalonians, John 14, 1 Corinthians 15, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and Revelation. So those are the main, and Matthew 24, we're going to be loosely dabbling in that as we go forward. But we've already studied the majority of those, which leaves us on this idea of 2 Thessalonians. So if, that's, if you wouldn't mind, I would welcome you all to turn to 2 Thessalonians. That's where we're going to be spending some time today. And just so you're aware, this is the, probably the shortest summary we could give about this subject of post-tribulationalism. I, I mean, we could teach the idea of post-tribulationalism till the cows come home. There's so much material out there. But I think it's far more important as it pertains to our study just to see how they handle these verses. Because they, there are a lot of philosophical arguments and logical uh, constructs that they use to try to push for the idea of po the post-tribulational rapture. But the problem with that is that it really diverts from what we believe in, which is just straight up the word of God. And they would argue that that's a mischaracterization of their position. But the post-trib crowd, more than any other crowd that I've ever been privy to, has a higher proclivity towards going towards spending time talking about John Nelson Darby, talking about how this is a non-historical interpretation. We prove that's uh, <laughs> an incorrect observational look at history to say that the rapture viewpoint started in the 18th century. We spent a lot of time on that. I welcome you to go back in time towards that study if you have any questions. But they will give you a lot of arguments that have nothing to do with the text. 
So what we're trying to do is we're trying to see how do they accurately handle the word of truth as we're called to do in the New Testament. So that being said, we're going to be looking at 2 Thessalonians today, which we don't have that much information on it. We're just going to go through the four slides on that, and then we're going to move forward into looking at what they believe in summation, because I don't want to be teaching about post-tribulationalism for 20 weeks. Neither do you want to hear about it for 20 weeks. So we're still studying Douglas Moo, um, who makes reference, I've mentioned this before, he makes references to Robert Gundry, who's written probably the thesis on the post-tribulational rapture perspective. Um, it's been argued that that's the best work on the subject. And so Douglas Moo is dipping into that as a resource while he gives a newer version of that, a more modern, what he considers to be a more thorough defense of post-tribulationalism. So that's why we're really focusing on what he has to say, because he, he has some good this, things to say in other areas, but he takes more of a historicist perspective on Revelation, which you know all about, because Kurt taught it when he went through the different uh, interpretive methods on Revelation. But even in the midst of that historicist perspective, he believes in a post-tribulational rapture, which means that he conflates the rapture with the second coming, saying that they're the same event. Um, he says there's no second, second coming. That's his favorite thing to say. So that being said, we're going to look at Second Thessalonians. But yeah, we'll, we'll look at what he has to say first, and then we'll comment on it. So he says, Second Thessalonians was written by Paul shortly after First Thessalonians. Correct. Awesome. In order to correct some misapprehensions about eschatology, particularly with respect to the erroneous belief that the end had to occur almost immediately. Thus, Paul in chapter 1 assures the Thessalonians of the certainty of the end with the judgment it will bring on those who are now distressing them. He then seeks to calm their excitement over the nearness of the end in chapter 2. We're going to pause there. So he's already denied imminency in that little bit we already read. Did you catch that? Where he says he was to correct some misapprehensions about eschatology, particularly with respect to the erroneous belief that the end had to occur almost immediately. So what he's getting at by saying that is he's saying it has to occur. So he's taking a mediating perspective because he does that a lot. I've, I've mentioned that in his writing. The higher up in scholarship you get, the less um, objective they become in the way that they word things. But what he's getting at is Paul was correcting this idea of eminence. That's essentially what he's getting at. And I, he goes into more detail about it later that we're not even going to look at. Just kind of keep that in mind as we're going forward. He says in 2 Thessalonians, Paul appears to provide strong support for the view that believers will not be raptured until the parousia of Christ at the end of the tribulation. For there will be no doubt in verses 7 through 8, Paul depicts this coming in glory, which he characterizes as the revelation of the Lord Jesus from heaven in a blazing fire with his powerful angels. Yet... It is at Ev, this time, that the believers who are suffering the tribulation are given rest. In other words, it is only at the post-tribulational advent that believers experience deliverance from the sufferings of this age. Attempt, attempts to avoid this conclusion take two forms. So we take a form to avoid his conclusion by literally interpreting Second Thessalonians. We, we avoid that conclusion. So anyway... Um, 
tooth forms. So he says, first, it is argued that since the Thessalonians were not in fact delivered at the time of Christ's return, they died long before it, and their persecutors will likewise, likewise not be destroyed at the end, being dead. They will not experience judgment until the conclusion of the millennium. Paul must be saying that God in his own time will destroy the persecutors. But not only does this interpretation fail to explain the fact that Paul obviously links both the rest and the destruction to the revelation of the Lord Jesus, how can this mean in God's own time? It overlooks the fact that everywhere in Paul's letters, he speaks as if the generation in which he lived might be the last. Thus, in both 1 Corinthians 15 and 1 Thessalonians 4, he indicates that the participants of the rapture are we who don't sleep slash are alive. And does this mean that Paul cannot be describing the rapture in these texts? Moreover, the eschatological rest Paul describes here does not come to all believers at the end of Christ's revelation for dead saints, including the Thessalonians, though resurrection for the living saints through the rapture. And that Paul associates the destruction of unbelievers with the revelation of Christ is likewise no difficulty. Scripture often associates events that will, in fact, be separated by the millennium, see John 5. A second way of avoiding a post-tribulational interpretation of these verses is to claim that the rest promised to the Thessalonians need not occur at the rapture. While this point must be appreciated, believers who die before the Lord's turn are certainly delivered from earthly trials before the rapture, the clear temporal link between the rest and the revelation of Christ cannot be severed. The only satisfactory way of explaining this text is to assume that Paul addresses the Thessalonians if they would be alive at the parousia, and he states that they experience rest only at the post-tribulational revelation of Christ. We'll revisit that in a second. He says, Paul's purpose in chapter 2 is to claim the Thessalonians with reference to the parousia of our Lord Jesus Christ and are being gathered to him, the emotional state of the Thessalonians suggested by the prohibitions in verse 2 is not clearly one of, the, one of fear or disappointment, such as could be influenced by the belief that they had missed the rapture. The verb suggests, rather, that they were agitated and unsettled, abandoning their normal common sense of daily pursuits in nervous excitement over the nearness of the end. This improper excitement was caused specifically by the belief that the day of the Lord had come a belief that is not easy to explain. Although we have suggested that the day includes the parasy and the rapture, it must be obvious, even to the excitable Thessalonians, that these events had not occurred. Perhaps then the tribulation will be included in the day, and the Thessalonians regarded extreme sufferings as evidence that they were in it. So let's just recap Second Thessalonians. I think that's the most important thing for us to do before we really critique their viewpoint. And there are, there are two other slides where he says essentially the same thing. So let's just start in chapter 2, because that's really the topic of discussion that he's shooting at. <clears throat> it says in verse 1, Now we request you, brethren, with request to the coming of our Lord, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. So, a couple things here. First of all, he makes reference to the rapture, the coming of the Lord in verse 1. So he's saying, in regard to that coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, 
and verse 2, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Because what happened? They got some letter written by someone who was impersonating Paul, basically telling them that they were in the tribulational period. So what is the whole purpose of this portion of the letter? What is he trying to show them? He's trying to demonstrate that they are, in fact, not in the tribulation. And so that being said, we will continue on. He says in verse 3, Let no one in any way deceive you. Let no one else in any way deceive you is a good way to word that. Um, For it will not come. What's it? When we say it will not come, is he talking about the rapture? Because that's what post-trib believers are arguing. That when he says, it will not come, they're talking about the rapture now. Saying that the rapture can't come because, and he follows, talking about all the things that are going to be happening during the tribulational period. Just catch that. Because when they give you their, their books, when they give you their objective, as they refer to it, literal interpretation of the text, they assign the rapture to the word it. So, just keep that in mind, where he says, let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first. What was the apostasy? We talked about that as the main apostatizing of the nation of Israel going into the tribulational period, where they made a covenant, not with the king of God's own choosing, not with Jesus Christ of the Davidic line. They instead make this covenant with this person they probably perceive as a Messiah with the Antichrist. So when we're talking about an apostatizing, that's largely what we believe that's referring to. So that being said, it will not come unless this apostasy comes first. Or you could go post-trib and just say it's an arbitrary apostasy at the end of the age. Um, That way you don't have to actually answer what the apostasy is. Um, And they say, and the man of lawlessness is revealed. Well, why would the man of lawlessness be revealed by this apostasy? Well, it's because, anyway... You know what I, you're, you guys are smart. You know what we're talking about. So he says, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. So why do they say this? They say this specifically that this is what this is talking about, because if they can make the mid-trib position, which is what's being talked about right now, is the point in the middle of the tribulational period where he does this, the abomination of desolation, then what he's saying is, well, the rapture can't come first because the midpoint of the trib hasn't happened yet. And the come, and so basically that way they can say, well, it's obvious that it's a post-trib rapture because the whole tribulation has to happen first. So of course you didn't miss the rapture. So that's the position they take on second Thessalonians. So as we're reading, just kind of keep in mind, that's like the framework that they have built in there as they're looking at the viewpoint. So that being said, he continues. He being Paul. We're, we're talking about Paul right now. Um, he says, do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? And you know what restrains him now, so that in his time, or yeah, in his time, he will be revealed for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. Then that lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth to bring to the end by the appearance of his coming. So which coming is he talking about now? He's talking about the second coming. 
That is, the one whose coming is in accordance with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders, and with all deception of wickedness for those who perish. Uh, because they did not receive the love of the truth, so as to be saved. For this reason, God will send upon them a, dueling, a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false, in order that they may all be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. So just kind of keep in mind, like that's, that's really where they're coming with it. Now, they'll have a difference of opinion about what the restrainer is and how that being taken out of the way allows the Antichrist to come in. But just keep in mind, like if you're just looking at the plain meaning of the text as we're going through this, you're not going <laughs> to uh, come to this idea that it's like a second coming. Um, but if they tell you that, you can see how you could come to that conclusion. Because if you, uh, if you miss the fact that they do a quick swap in verse 1 and 2 and they say it is now the rapture, well, then it's, it's super easy to come to their conclusion because now you're basing everything off of that premise. And now, in logic, if your initial premise is false, whatever conclusion you build off of that premise is also thereby going to be false. So, anyway, we will, we will continue in this looking at how they handle this because I think this is really important. So part of this is because we really want, we believe the best uh, sanitizer is actually going to be sunlight. We believe that the more light you shine on somebody's methodology, the more light you shine on how they go about a logic structure, the easier it is to see when they step out of line. Um, and you really see it for what it is. So that being said, Douglas Moo continues, and I'm not just trying to attack him. I mean, he's forgotten more than I'll ever learn about theology. He's a brilliant teacher, and he does a lot of good things. But I disagree with him on this particular subject. So he says, but a better interpretation is to regard this excitement as caused by their conviction that the dawning of that day was, uh, was regarded as even then occurring. With the other events associated with it just around the corner. However, we explain this statement. The one thing is clear. The Thessalonians had not experienced the rapture. He's, he's correct. They had not experienced the rapture. Yet, they thought themselves to be in the day. How does Paul uh, disabuse them of this notion? He does so by citing events that must occur before the day comes. According to the apostle, there are two of these. Um, the revelation of the man of lawlessness, the man doomed to destruction. The latter is probably to be identified as the eschatological Antichrist, described also in Mark 13 and the parallels in Revelation 13. All these descriptions depend on the characterization of this figure in Daniel 7 and 11. And it is improbable that this revelation can indicate anything other than the actions enumerated in verse 4. The other necessary antecedent to the day... Um, however you pronounce that, is best understood as a religious rebellion against God. So that's how they interpret the apostasy. Um, just kind of keep that in mind. When they say something, this is best interpreted as X, Y, or Z, um, what they're saying is, let's just assume this and let's move on. Now, that doesn't have as much of a, an impact on what we particularly believe, but just keep in mind, this is actually written after a lot of the um, 
I would say the popular dispensationalist viewpoint right now, which is saying that the apostasia is actually talking about a departure thereby the rapture. So he actually interacts with that later. But just kind of keep that in mind. Um, he says, you know that your present sufferings cannot represent the final tribulation because you will be taken to heaven before then. To use the illustration introduced earlier, if you know that your foreign friend was to be safely out of the country by the time the war broke out, and he, in seeing great unrest beginning to happen, though he was becoming involved in it, would you calm him by telling him that certain events had to take happen before the war without reminding him that he would be safely out of the country when it actually occurred? The fact that Paul points to the non-presence of an indisputably tribulational event, the revelation of the Antichrist, as evidence that the day had not come, surely implies that believers will see it when it does occur. Furthermore, it cannot be argued in, re in reply that Paul simply assumes that Thessalonians know that the rapture will occur before that day. We disagree with that, but we're going to go on. The fact that the Thessalonians believed themselves to be in that day shows either that they had forgotten or were never taught that the rapture preceded it. So let's pause right there. I, I, I think it's super important to interject on this point because what is Paul actually saying to them? How is he addressing the Thessalonians in this verse? What did he say? He says that we, requ we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure. Okay, so to be shaken from your composure would imply that there was a composure established prior to that that could be shaken. Okay, and he says, or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. So what he's saying is don't be deceived don't be shaken from the foundation we built six months ago when I wrote 1 Thessalonians, where we ended every chapter with a reference to the coming of the Lord. I described the rapture, and I described twice that you weren't going to be in it. Because that's what 1 Thessalonians is about. That's what he's talking about. But instead, um, the post-tribulationalists suggest that it cannot be argued in reply that Paul simply assumes that the Thessalonians know that the rapture will occur before that day. I think it could be, it's not an assumption, it's in the Bible in 1 Thessalonians. So we're not making an assumption, we're just acknowledging that was written in 1 Thessalonians, and we're recapitulating that as we're moving into 2 Thessalonians. Now, he says the fact that the Thessalonians believed themselves to be in that day shows either that they had forgotten or were never taught that the rapture preceded it. No, they got a false letter as if from Paul, and he was writing to undo the damage done by that letter. It's very different than that. And so that's the assumption they make when they're trying to argue for these points. And if you're not really versed on 1 Thessalonians, or I'm sorry, um, passively if versed on 1 Thessalonians, because you don't have to be trained in a dispensationalist viewpoint to look at the plain meaning of Scripture, um, I mean, you could take that a hundred different directions, but just keep in mind, that's where they're shooting with that. And Douglas Moore in particular, he's not malicious about it, but I think he's looking at it through a lens that shapes his understanding of the text. So it's our job to be Bereans and to actually look at that and measure it against scripture to see if it's true. And so far, so far, we're not having a lot of luck in the measuring department. So it says, meaning that they're not landing where they ought to be. So he says, 
In either case, it is difficult to say why Paul would not mention it. Before leaving this text, one final argument brought up against a post-tribulational interpretation must be dealt with. It is often argued that the tribulational events described here by Paul cannot transpire until the church is physically removed because it is the Holy Spirit through the church who now restrains the Antichrist. Verses 6 and 7, he says three points need to be made with reference to this argument. First, it's unlikely that the Holy Spirit is the one who Paul describes in these verses. Swing and a miss. (laughs) Um, Anyway, he says there seems to be no reason for using such mysterious language if the Holy Spirit is intended. Nor is it probable that Paul would have spoken of the Spirit as being taken out of the way. Neither does the fact that Paul uses a masculine participle, he who restrains, and a neuter participle, that which restrains, and sometimes um, adduced in support of this interpretation, favorite. I can find no place in Paul's writings where he uses a neuter term to designate the Holy Spirit, except where it is directly dependent on the term spirit. Second, even if the Holy Spirit is intended, there is nothing in this passage that would indicate that his restraining activity must be carried out through the church. Third, whatever one's view, it is improper to base very much of a text that is so notoriously obscure, the verb um, can be translated hold back or hold fast, occupy, and has been understood as signifying Rome and the emperor, the civil government, God and his power, Michael the archangel, the preaching of the gospel, Paul, Satan, general evil forces, a combination of benevolent forces, the Jewish state, and James, or a mythical symbol with no particular context. So it's funny how they interact with these verses, because what they have to do is if if you adjust one piece of your equation, obviously that changes the outcome and no longer makes the equation work in math. So what he has to do is he, if he adjusts in one place, he has to go forward and adjust in another and another and another until you have a very different um, interpretation of what it's actually talking about. So when it says, but you know what restrains him now. So this is where you're getting that neuter, that neuter noun. But what it says following that is very significant. So that in his time, he will be revealed for a mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains, he who now restrains him, the Antichrist, will do so until he is taken out of the way. So what is the, I'll say it this way, what is the main characteristic of the church age that is distinct from every other age that precedes it? The inhabitation, the permanent Ephesians chapter 1, 11 through 13, the permanent inhabitation of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. Never before did that ever happen. Never. There were temporary times when the Holy Spirit would go into a person for a purpose, um, like the anointing of the Holy Spirit and those things. But it wasn't, it didn't have the level of permanence it has now. We are sealed as a pledge of our redemption. We have ultimate assurance of our salvation because we're inhabited by the Holy Spirit as believers in this age. Um, so their basic assertion, if you read a lot farther in their writings and Gundry's writings and bloggers on the internet who are all experts on the Bible, <laughs> um, is that, well, the Holy Spirit can't leave. That would be ridiculous. Well, that has never been the case through the history of the world up until the church age. And so it's, quite 
ridiculous to assume that just because God did something specifically special through the church, that once the church is removed, he would continue doing and working in that way. You can make that assumption, but it doesn't say that he's going to do that anywhere in scripture. If I'm wrong, I I hope someone corrects me on that. But just kind of keep in mind, like, and you even see this in uh, micro form in our country. Like when something happens, when somebody's pushing legislation that's anti-God, who jumps up to try to fight it within the laws of our country? The Christians do. The people that believe that all the things that would get us demonetized off of YouTube. Um, (laughs) But like the work that the Holy Spirit does through his body restrains evil. Now, it could be argued that there's a higher restraint that is restraining both Satan and his abilities through the power of the Holy Spirit that happens that we don't see. I've, I've heard that argued by theologians as well. Either way, it doesn't really matter because it's the Holy Spirit that's restraining him because Satan has immense power and the only thing that exists in the universe is God that could restrain him. So we could go into a lot of detail about that. I welcome you to look back in our archives. Kurt spent weeks and weeks on Second uh, Thessalonians chapter 2, so you can get a pretty good summation of it there. But just kind of keep that in mind. As we're looking at this, you saw everything they had to do to come away with a post-trib interpretation of chapter 2 of Second Thessalonians. There's a lot going on there. Um, so anyway... That's the basis for their interpretation of chapter 2. And I, I see no reason to uh, divorce ourselves from the plain meaning of the text as it pertains to the coming of the Lord in Second Thessalonians. Plus, we call it Second Thessalonians for a reason. First, the, first Thessalonians came first. And we had obvious, conspicuous principles that were built in First Thessalonians. And it would make perfect literal interpretive sense to assume that 2 Thessalonians, when he makes references to things, that it's a recapitulation of what he already said. He's not going to go into, just like us. I mean, when we looked at all those verses on eminence, we're not going to go into all the minutiae about how we came to that conclusion every time we talk about a verse. We're going to summarize it because we've already taught it. Paul, likewise, isn't going to do the same thing in 2 Thessalonians and reteach everything he taught them Six months ago, he's going to make reference. So when he talks about he who now restrains, it's not ridiculous to assume that he already taught it when he says what? That he already taught it to them. That he had already taught them these things. And he says in verse five, do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things. So he's not going to go into all the detail that he did before because he's making an argument on the foundation of the teaching he had already done. So, what does that do for us? Well, first of all, it means that we cannot just make up meanings and apply them to the terms he uses when he's not specific. In 2 Thessalonians, we have to go back to where he had already taught. And he taught very thoroughly about the coming of the Lord in terms of the rapture. He taught very thoroughly in chapter 5 about the coming of the Lord in the tribulation at the end when he makes reference to that time period. Distinct from when he made a reference about the rapture. We talk about that too. So as we're looking at these things, just keep in mind, that is how a lot of the post-trib group will take this particular subject. That being said, let's do a little bit of summarizing. And 
I'm going to say this right now. We are going to finish today looking at a summation of the general gist of what they believe. And then I'm hoping, I'm, I'm hoping that next week we will actually finish post-tribulationalism. At worst, it'll be another week past that point. But this is just a summary of some of the things on Mu from his paper. He says that when we turn to the Old Testament, the situation is complicated by the fact that it is often difficult to discern whether a particular description of tribulation relates to the exile, the final judgment, or the great tribulation as such. I agree with that. <laughs> we talked about that too because they use non-technical word usage. When they talk about the day of the Lord, it could mean one of five different things. When they talk about tribulation, when they talk about the time of Jacob's trouble. I mean, it's all specific in the context that it could be found in, but if you're just taking the words and the verses out of the Old Testament and trying to apply them, you're going to have some trouble. Um, so that being said, he be um, they believe there are many texts in the Old Testament which refer to the, the nature of the tribulation. He names five verses. Uh, he's, and he refers to it as to name a few, but these are actually the only verses he really t spends any time on. Um, trick of the trade when you, when you want to seem like you know way more than you're actually using to support your argument just say oh these are a few verses I found that support it those are the only verses you found that you think that you can support it it's, it's just funny I see, I see a lot of people doing that too um, he believes that only a few texts in the Old Testament must this is a key word refer to the great tribulation and he uses the verses straight out of Daniel to prove that the reason he says that is because there are other verses, and he names way more than I'm putting on the screen, that may refer to the Great Tribulation. Now, you might be wondering, why does it matter? Why is he doing it like this? Well, the reason is that if he can take the beginning point of the trib all the way just prior to the second coming and make that distinct in nature from the day of the Lord, which is how they usually word it, which would be the coming of the Lord second coming on, and those things, if he can make that distinction, then he can say, well, God's wrath isn't really poured out at the same level than it is on the second coming. Um, what do we believe about the wrath of the Lord as it pertains to the tribulational period? We're, we're talking about this in Revelation right now. We believe it is birth pangs. Birth pangs get greater in both size and intensity as it's moving forward. So that's why we almost see like a graph, like a telescoping, where it goes out, goes back in a little bit, goes out farther, and then farther until eventually you have the culmination of the wrath of God at the second coming. So, again, we believe the wrath of God is all throughout the tribulational period. They would agree and disagree with that because they make it very, very arbitrary in, in a way, in a sense, as they're describing it, because they'll, they'll say things like, well, yeah, the wrath of God is always, always present against unbelievers in judgment, but this is mostly Satan's wrath. This is mostly the world's wrath. This is mostly the Antichrist's wrath. So they'll attribute the wrath to everybody else. Um, but again, we just like to bring up Re <laughs> Revelation chapter 6, verse 1. It's not Satan that's opening the seals and delivering judgment on the earth. It is Jesus Christ. That is the whole significance of chapter 4 and 5, where we see that Jesus is the only one worthy to do that. He's the only one worthy to take back what many theologians call the title deed of the earth, where he's taking the earth back from the throes of sin. He's the only one worthy. 
Um, that's why John weeps when he sees that no one else can do it because it seems hopeless. It seems, yeah, anyway, getting off that horse, um, that's where they're going with their arguments. That's, so that's why he says things like, these verses must refer to the Great Tribulation. These ones might. They, they may. Um, they shall be permitted to be observed as such. Like, he'll say things like that. Um, but he believes this creates two points of relevance. He believes that the sufferings of the saints during the period are uniformly attributed to the Antichrist. And though chapter 11, verse 36 and 8, verse 19, attest to the presence of divine wrath during this time, they don't explain the duration of it or if it directly falls on the saints. He gets the idea that it's separate off that basis. So what he's saying is, well, it doesn't specifically say that God's wrath falls on saints, so we have to assume it doesn't. That's what they're arguing. Um, what do we see? And so when you see all the martyrs who are dying, all these Christian, I shouldn't say Christians, all these believers in Christ, believe, because that's what they are. There are people who believed in the Christ that they rejected prior to the tribulational period. That doesn't make them Christians. It makes, because to be a Christian, you have to do what? You have to be in Christ. You have to be in this body. And I think the body is a little bit displaced at this time period. And I think we've argued for that a few times. Um, but what the, what they suggest is that, well, these Christians died because of persecution. They died because of X, Y, and Z. And those things are true. Um, but again, and we're going to keep reiterating this over and over and over and hammering this out as we're going through, we know that what were they promised in Revelation chapter 3? That they would not be present for the time of the testing that was to fall upon the whole world, upon those who dwell on the earth, who we know are the earth dwellers, who we know are not Christians. So that was like a creepy Joe Biden whisper. <laughs> um, so and anyway, mo moving on very far away from that. He says that um, this brings up the existence of the term tribulation, which appears 45 times in the New Testament. Of those occurrences, only five are related to the final period of distress. He argues that the presence of the church in tribulations in the present age leads us to believe that they will be in the age to come. And the way that they word this, if you, I believe it's, if I'm remembering correctly, it's uh, Hebrews chapter one within the first few verses. He mentions that we are in the last days. So the way they logically try to construct this is if, well, if we're in the last days right now and we're in tribulations right now and the last days will presu presumably go until Jesus's return in the second coming, then if we're present for the, 38 verses or whatever it ends up being. Um, no, it's about 40 verses that refer to tribulations in the present age. Why are we making the assumption that we're going to be non-present for the other five? That's the argument that they make. And so when we're looking at this, just kind of keep in mind, that's the framework they're pushing. And so if you don't have this, uh, if you didn't spend more time than you wanted to on the doctrine of eminence, or any of these other things, or if you didn't study First Thessalonians two years ago when we went through that, these arguments, I mean, they sound pretty convincing. I'm not really presenting them in such a way that would obviously promote my advocacy for them. I'm doing quite the opposite. Um, but if you didn't have a good biblical framework, these arguments would make a lot of sense because they're very logical. They base it very much on specific points of Scripture and if you don't, if you've never studied Daniel, you've never studied Zephaniah, 
Um, you don't have a good framework on Isaiah and Ezekiel. It, these arguments, the, like, yeah, you're quoting the Old Testament. These verses seem to promote what you're saying. And if you don't have a very good, if you as a teacher or a theologian who's writing these things doesn't have a good framework for, I don't know, uh, Zephaniah, what event is actually being described? Or Daniel, which is difficult to understand if you're not versed in the rest of the Old Testament. So if you don't have these uh, building blocks and these frameworks, then it can be pretty easy to say, yeah, these, these seem to make a lot of sense. He's pretty logical. Yeah, he mentioned Second Thessalonians. He's telling me that it's talking about the rapture couldn't have come because the tribulation's happening already. So, I mean, these seem to make a lot of sense. Um, Daniel and I actually had an agreement that when, it was, when I was over time, he would actually start screaming to remind me that, um, that it was time to be done. So, in case you're wondering, we, we have a deal there. So, so as we're looking at these things, just kind of keep in mind, like, that's where we're going with this study. I'm not trying to give a ton of airtime to an opposing viewpoint and let you decide for yourselves. You've already decided because you've decided that you're going to interpret literally according to a literal historical grammatical interpretation, which means that you take the words at face value unless there's a grammatical clue to indicate that you should do otherwise. When the when the plain sense makes sense, seek no other sense lest you come up with nonsense, right? That's, that's kind of the, the argument that people would often give. And so at this point, what are we trying to do? We're trying to see, do these beliefs hold water? Are there holes in these theories? Is this something that we can look at and come to a biblical conclusion on? Are we able to measure this according to Scripture? Why do we call it the canon of Scripture? Because we use it as a measuring line. So if somebody comes up and says, you know what, I've, uh, I've taught, oh, what is it Joseph Smith said? He basically said he had more truth. I'll look up the quote. It's pretty, it's pretty scary. Um, sounded a lot like what Rick Warren said last week, but that's another conversation for another time at the Southern Baptist Convention. So anyway, that'll be a fun quote to just throw out there. He, apparently, Rick Warren taught 1.1 million pastors. Yep, that's what he said. So <laughs> uh, he may have mistaught that many people, though. So he might not be far off. So before I get in trouble, let's go to the Lord with prayer. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the things that you've done. Um, we're so grateful for the promises that you've given us, the fact that we can go to you in prayer, that we can come boldly before the throne of grace, knowing that not only do you hear every word, but that you welcome these prayers, that these are things that you want. You want us to be in communion with you. You want us to pursue intimacy with you on a relational basis, that you want us to know who you are, to be able to learn the things that are true, the things that are false, so that as we're building a framework for our lives, we're building it on solid ground. That as we're looking not only at our lives, but the life to come, the responsibilities that you have for us in the kingdom, all of these things that you've given to us show the importance of how we ought to live our lives in the present. Because every decision we make has eternal ramifications. So I ask that you help us to truly understand that at a deeper level as we're trying to truly um, be more dependent upon you, to realize, or I should say, realize our dependence upon you because we are far more dependent than we realize on all the things that you have provided for us. So Lord, I ask that you be with us in the service to come as we're in fellowship. 
pray for those of us who are sick or struggling, and I ask that you would give us rest and help us to truly trust on you and to lean on you. I pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen.